And so this morning we're starting a new sermon series, and, and there isn't really a title for it. Um, we could probably go with Who is Jesus to You? Or Who do we say Jesus is? Or we could say the eight I am statements of Jesus. It really doesn't matter what the title of the series is. But what's important is that I hope that we can convey a message, a clear message to our children about who Jesus is. Because I think that if we raise children in the way that they should go, the way that they should go is always towards Jesus. Because if we teach our kids nothing but who Jesus is, the scripture tells us that they will experience eternal life, but not only that, they will experience the fullness of life. So I want to begin with a bit of an interactive kind of thing that I just thought of this very second. So I'm going to ask a question, but it's not for the adults. You're going to want to answer this, but please refrain from this. How many kids do we have in the sanctuary? Parents, can you have them raise their hands? All right. How many kids do we have? How many kids in the house? Yeah. I'm going to ask this question. Children, kids, how many of you has a best friend? All right. So here's what I want to do. For every one of you kids, if you feel comfortable, I want you to tell me the name of your best friend. Songly Scout. Oh, you got to say it. All right. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're standing next to each other. Anyone else? Maddie and Iris. Awesome. How about you? Uh-oh. You don't have a best friend? How about you, Max? I do. You have me. Pastor Dave. Who lets you write on the whiteboard? Pastor Dave. All right, here, good. Who else? <laughs> Who else wants to share? I forgot that I had a microphone on my lapel. <laughs> Who else would like to share the name of their best friend? Matthew, would you like to share the name of your best friend? Oh, you're shy? It's okay. All right. Anyone else down there? Oh, okay. That's all right. How about here? Pastor, yes. Annette. Oh, Annette. All my friends at school. Yeah. That's a lot of friends. Who else? Who else would like to share? Oh, yeah. Ann and Denai, you have to. You're getting baptized next week. By the way, they're getting baptized next week. Who's your best friend? Harper. Valerie. All right. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? What's the name of your best friend? Chris. Chris, very nice. Do you want to share a name, your name of your best friend? Jared. Jared, how about you? Do you understand the question? Yeah. <laughs> that works for me. How about you? What's the name of your best friend? Matthew. Matthew, how about you? You want to share? Just say it. Just pick one. They're not here. <laughs> Go ahead. Just say it. Kevin. Kevin. All right. How about you? Do you want to try one? No? Back there. You guys have to say the name of your best friends because you're my nephew. These are my nephews, by the way. Uh, my mom. My mom. Oh, She's not here. You don't have to say that. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Jojo? Daniel and Eric. All right. And how about Alexis? Oh, she's asleep. One for the big kid. Pastor Dave. Oh, man. <laughs> That's the wrong answer, Bob. It's supposed to be Karen. Why do we do this? Because we know that when we have a best friend, the world can be falling apart, but when you know that you have someone to rely on, it makes it just a little bit better. 
And the truth is, is that we say that, well, Jesus should be our best friend. But the reality is, is that that's really hard to say. Our best friend is our wife or our husband. Our best friend is our childhood friend. We have all sorts of best friends, but if we could try to focus our lives to try to always keep our eyes on Jesus as being the person who will always be there for us, the world may still fall apart, but God will keep you strong through the strongest storms. Because people want to know who God is. There's a, there's a, there's a um, you've probably seen this if you have television at home or even on the internet, but there's a new National Geographic show, and it's called Story of God. And um, who, who better to narrate that than the voice of God, right? Who's the voice of God? Morgan Freeman, who I think doesn't even believe in God, but it's kind of weird. But there's this interest, I believe, in society. We want to know the question of who is God. We want to know who God is. Where does God come from? Because if we can know that, then we will actually believe that there is a God that exists. You see, the truth is, is that if we could truly understand who God is, and if we could truly understand where God comes from, and if we could understand everything about God, then God wouldn't be God. There's a way to explain that God is greater than that which we can conceive. That's Anselm of Canterbury. He says, God is greater than that which your brain can conceive. So what that means is that no matter how smart you are, no matter your IQ, no matter what you got on the SATs, no matter what you got on whatever other tests they put in school, no matter how smart and how good you are, even the brightest minds of our time can never fully grasp all there is to know about God. And I ask you, is, is, can this book contain everything there is to know about God? Impossible. But it's a start, it's a foundation, and it points us to something that we can actually see and touch. And what I mean is that this morning, the Bible read by our scripture reading is that eternal life is to know God. Everyone wants to know who God is and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so for us to know God then we should probably start to look at the perfect revelation of who God is. So another way of saying that, if we want to understand God, let's look at Jesus, and this is for the kids in here, let's look at Jesus, because Jesus will teach us what we need to know about God. Because we don't have to know everything, we just need to know enough so that we can trust the God who creates all things. So I have a PowerPoint this morning, and I want to just begin in Matthew chapter 16. And here's the story. Now when Jesus came into the district of Thessalonica Philippi, he was with his disciples. Now as we read this, because some of us have never been to the Holy Land, as they say, it's just another place. It's just another name of a town. Philippi was a very Hellenistic city, means that it was influenced by Greek philosophy, by Greek thought, by Greek religion. So if you think of like a modern day Las Vegas, but worse than that. And here's what I mean by that. People, that, you know, we call Las Vegas Sin, Sin City. What the idea is that anything you could possibly think of doing, you could find it there. 
And there are people who say that no good Christian should ever go to Las Vegas. So in the first century, the rabbis would say that no good Jew would ever be found in Caesarea Philippi. It was that bad. There was a place there in the city, and it was a rock. It was like a side of a cliff. And the side of the cliff was, was where the, the people had different shrines to different gods. And the one god that was there that they, that they um, kind of held higher than all the other ones was the god named Pan, P-A-N. Like pan pizza, but without the pizza. Pan. And it was the god of, or goddess of fertility. And what that means is that because there was a goddess of fertility, there were things that were done there that were, quote-unquote, worship unto this God. So Jesus, knowing that no good Jew would ever go there, he takes his disciples there. Do you begin to see why Jewish people in the first century, the rabbis, had a problem with Jesus? He was doing something that they had all deemed was horrible and bad and sinful, and they say, don't ever go there. And what does Jesus do? He takes the 12 men that he was teaching how to live life to its fullest so that they could then teach other people. Jesus takes these people to the Las Vegas of first century Middle East. And so Jesus, while he is there in this really bad place, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And what I didn't put in here is that Jesus then asks them, but who do you say I am? And that's the question that is driving this entire sermon series. And we don't know how long it's going to go. It might be seven weeks, it might be 10 weeks, it might be 12 weeks. Because the scriptures are packed with different pictures of who Jesus is. And here's the question that I want to ask you, and for our kids as well. It's who do you say I am, Max? Who do you, Anne? Who do you deny? Who do you, Scout? Who do you, Matthew, say I am? But see, it's not just for children. It's for the adults. Who do you, Ruby, say I am? Who do you, Chuck, say I am? Who do you, Joel, say that I am? Joel is my brother-in-law, just in case you guys are wondering. <laughs> Not the other one. That is the question that Jesus is asking us, is who do you say that I am? And the question is, if I were to walk around with a microphone right now, all of you would have really great answers to say. You all would have really great words to tell me and Bible verses to tell me who Jesus is. And so it's really easy for us to give Bible verses about who Jesus is. But you see, it's more than just the words that you use that say who you think Jesus is. Now, we know that when we communicate, it's verbal, right? So right now, I'm verbally communicating. I'm also non-verbally communicating by trying to step away from the podium and trying to show excitement because I get excited when I talk about Jesus. And so as humans, we verbally communicate, but that's not always the strongest form of communication. And the question that I want to ask is ask you, and I want to ask the children, and I want to ask everyone, is who do you say Jesus is, not just by your words, but by how you treat other people, 
by how you interact with other people? What are you non-verbally communicating to other people? Because we don't need more Bible verses to talk about Jesus. We need to live better lives. If you were um, on your phone right now looking at social media, you might want to post it on your social media feed because we believe that good and great ideas change the world. And we want Christianity to be better. See, we don't need more Bible verses to talk about Jesus. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't talk about Jesus, but people are getting a louder message by how you act and interact with them than the actual words you are using about Jesus. The motivation for why you do what you do outside of this building is what you truly believe about Jesus. Let me give you an example. Please don't raise your hand. How many of you that are married have ever, um, on the way to church, been mad at your wife or your husband? Don't raise your hand. How many of you were, maybe it was an argument that was, has been weeks in, ha- in, in happening? Maybe it was something you did that morning or something you said, right? Whatever it is, but you're arguing, upset, and you're just like, ugh, Right? But then the moment you get out of your car, you're all smiles, and you're like, hey, sister, brother, how you doing? God bless you. Happy Sabbath. But how we interact with people. You could be such a jerk to your husband and your wife. You could be upset with them. And then the moment you walk into church, you're this uber awesome, perfect Christian. And you can say all of the right things about Jesus You can sit in Sabbath school and say that Jesus is our Savior and Jesus is our Lord and it is because of Jesus and through Jesus and when we confess Jesus that we have eternal life. We can say all of that, but if you had just been a Jew, it doesn't really matter that much because what you're saying about Jesus isn't actually affecting how you're treating the people you love the most. And so the motivation for why you do what you do outside of this building is what you're actually saying about what you believe Jesus, who Jesus is. It's not just what you say with your words. We use words all the time that we don't mean. How many of you have ever said sorry, but you weren't really sorry? Yeah, we do that. So you could say all of the right things about Jesus, but if it's not changing how you live your life, then maybe you don't believe it. There's other nonverbal ways of communicating. And this is something that I came across recently. And so I, I didn't have, we'll see. We'll see how this, you'll see. There's an understanding, there's a study that says an electromagnetic field that your heart sends out. Right? So you know how we have brain waves? There's a, the study says that the heart actually sends out stronger waves than your brain waves. Right? So we have this electromagnetic current that runs through our body. Okay? We know that. What they say is that that what that the electromagnetic waves that resonate or extend out of yourself is in an eight-foot radius completely around you. Which means, and you'll know what I, what I will know this is true, have you ever been in a room and someone walks into the room who's negative, who's upset, who's angry, and they just sucks the energy out of the room? Because your energy can actually affect the mood and the energy of other people. 
They look at this in terms of um, how to help people heal after difficult circumstances or people in hospitals. And so they, they say, we want to always be positive when we walk into hospital rooms because we want to bring as positive energy ourselves as possible. We've also known someone who is just full of life and maybe you're feeling kind of down and maybe you're having a bad day, but if that person, your best friend comes in and he or she is just happy and exuding happiness, doesn't that kind of begin to change and pick us up? You see, what and how you live your life says a lot about what you believe about Jesus. The reason that's important, here's another tweetable quote. People make judgments about God from how they experience you. Did you know that? If people know you're a Christian, they are not actually judging you because they already know you're a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. We're all in process of becoming more like Christ, okay? People are not judging you. They are judging the God you say you believe in. Well, if that person is a Christian, I don't want anything to do with that God. And I do this, I try not to, but I've found myself doing this like, ah, oh, they're a Christian and they're doing that. And I'm just like, ah, oh, David, hold a mirror in front of you because you're just as bad in different ways. Jesus tells us, don't look at the log in someone else's eye, when you, well, the splinter in someone else's eye when you have a log in your eye, which means don't judge other people. If you're going to judge anyone, judge yourself. People are making a decision about what they believe about the Christian God based on how you are treating them based on how hard or how not hard you work. They're judging God based on your work ethic, on the words you use. They're judging God based on every part of your life. Because nonverbal communication is words you use. If you've ever been hurt by someone, maybe it's a wife or a husband, and they say sorry, and they say things like, well, I don't really want to hear you say sorry. I want to see you do what? Change the way you treat me. Don't say sorry. I'm fine if you don't say sorry as long as you never do that again. So you're asking me, why, why all of this if we're having a conversation about Jesus? Because Jesus asks us, who do you say I am? Who are you telling other people by how you live your life? Who are you telling them? What is the picture you are showing them of who I am? Because if we believe that as Seventh-day Adventists, we are to provide a witness that we are supposed to lift up Christ. The Bible tells us that if you lift up Christ, he will draw all people to himself. So if you truly have accepted, and if you have been baptized and you accept that you are entrusting your life to Jesus, then you are instantly a part of the good work that God is doing in this world. So whether you feel like it or not, if you've given your life to Christ, you now get to be a walking, talking billboard for who the God of the Bible says that he is. So Jesus asks them, well, who do you say I am? And he said to them, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Remember I said we don't need more Bible verses? This is Jesus' words adapted to 2016. Jesus says, flesh and blood, a preacher has not taught you I am the Son of God. It has not been revealed. 
revealed or shown to you by any other person, but it has been revealed to you by who? My Father in heaven. Our conviction about who Jesus is to us doesn't come because I'm convincing you from up here. I would like to think that I have mastered the art of persuasion. And I would like to think that I am the best preacher in the world. And I would like to think that every word that comes out of my mouth can convince anyone to believe whatever it is that I'm saying. But I know that's not true. I'm like top 10 for sure, but not the best. <laughs> Just kidding. The point I'm trying to make is that it's, the, it's God who convicts you about what you see and believe who Jesus says that he is. It's God. We are here to create space. Church is here to create space. Bible studies are here to create space. Prayer is creating space for us to be able to experience in a very intentional way what the Spirit of God is doing. You see, we preach from the Scriptures because we are creating space for the Holy Spirit to work on you so that when you hear the words, who do you say I am? And then Peter responds, you are the son of God. What is it? You are the, what did he say? You are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. We're, we're saying those words so that the Holy Spirit can use those to convict to you to the very core of your being so that when you accept that, you have now become a part of the church of God who is now living the eternal kind of life now. We're creating space. I can't convince you. I just had a conversation with a couple this morning. I won't mention who they are. And we, it was just a fun conversation. I hope they don't mind. Sorry, guys. But the one spouse says to the other spouse, in all the years I've known you, the more you try to convince me, has it ever worked? And the answer's like, no. Has the opposite effect. I just hunker down, which we all do. I use that illustration because that's what we do. Better arguments and better words don't convince someone. Only who can convince someone? God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, blood and flesh has not revealed this to you. And then he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. So... That's the end. No, I'm just kidding. Some of you are asking this question. So does that mean that Jesus has just teached and preached this profound message to his followers, and then he ends with saying, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. If you were, lit, if you were just reading the Bible literally, and what I mean by that is if you and I are just reading this Bible in the English text, and we think that it's written in 2016. When we read this verse, we would, it would lead us to believe, if you were just reading it literally. And what I mean by that is you read the words that are on the page and you believe it to be true. If you were reading it just literally, you would be like, well, then Peter, Jesus just says that he is the rock, he is the son of the living God, he is the, you know, the, the Messiah that everyone's waiting for. But if you were just reading the Bible literally, you would come away from this verse, verse 18, saying, Jesus is that, but Peter is the head of God's church on earth. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. So who's the rock that Jesus is talking about? If you come back next week, no, I'm just kidding. 
I know, see, because you guys are good Adventists. You're like, well, it's Jesus. It has to be Jesus, because if it's not Jesus, then it's Peter, and Peter's the first pope, and we don't want to go down that road. Here's the truth. Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so then with the commentators who understand the Greek, who aren't just reading the English, but who are understanding the original context, are saying, it's not just that Jesus is saying that he is building his church on the confession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Messiah. But the way that the Greek is written is that it's not even just referring to that text, but it's referring to Jesus as the subject of the text. And so the rock on which God will build his church that not even hell will prevail against it is not on Peter. It's not even on the confession of Peter that he is the Messiah, but on Jesus himself. The head of the church the rock of the church, the foundation of the church is Peter. And we know that, right? So here's a little bit of trivia. I, I'm not giving this to you so you can go fight people that think Peter was the head of the church, okay? If you do that, you've missed the point. You've got to go back to square one. When, when Jesus talks to Peter, he uses the word in Greek called Cephas, I believe it was. I don't remember my right now. Cephas with an S at the end. No, I'm sorry, Petras. Cephas is Hebrew. The word that Jesus uses to call Peter his own name is actually a play on words, and it's actually talking about you, here's how I would read in English, you, a fragment of the rock, a small fragment of the rock, you are Peter, and on the bigger Petra, the main rock, the cornerstone rock, the bedrock, the foundation rock, on that I will build my church. He was making it clear, Peter, you are not the head Jesus is the head. Probably because Jesus knew that Peter would play a central role in what Christianity would look like. Listen, that's okay. We're okay with, Pete, with the 12 disciples being leaders. We're fine with that. But it's Jesus who is the rock. Jesus is the foundation. And so the question we ask is, who do you say Jesus is? Not just by what you're saying, but who is Jesus to you? Is he the foundation, the bedrock of your faith? And so when we think about this and when we think about, well, who is Jesus? Well, we want to teach our kids, and kids, if you're listening, that the foundation for our entire lives must be Jesus. Not just because we're Christians, but because Jesus is the one who shows us who God is. So when we talk to Morgan Freeman, if we ever run into him, you know, you could say, hey, you're trying to figure out the story of God, but I can point you to the one who shows us who God is. You see, because as Christians and as we talk about evangelism, it's always about pointing to Jesus. Because God says if you lift Jesus up, he will draw all people to himself. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God, my Father in heaven, has revealed this to you. And we started this off asking the kids, well, who is your best friend? And you know, what's awesome about Scripture is that, you know, we think of Jesus as you know, as God and Jesus as this faraway person. But you know what Jesus calls you? Do you know how many times Jesus calls you a sinner? How many times? Zero. You call yourself sinner. Other people call you sinners. Jesus, the son of the living God, the rock of our foundation, the foundation of the church, Jesus, the guy who lays down his life for you, calls you sinner zero times. But Jesus calls you friend many times. 
Jesus calls his disciples, and vicariously he calls you, you are my friends. He says, I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I have heard from the Father. If you read this entire context, he says, you are not slaves, you are not servants, you are my friend. There's no need to be afraid of Jesus. You know, some of you are like, whoa, he's the friend that I haven't talked to in six years. That's okay, you're still friends. I have a friend that I talk to maybe once a year, but we're still like the best friends. Obviously, we encourage you that the more you talk to a friend, a.k.a. Jesus, the better your life's going to be. The more you talk to Jesus, the better the foundation for your life will be. Remember, Christianity absolutely never promises that your life will be perfect. Christianity never promises that there won't be storms. Christianity never promises that everything is, that everything is fine and you'll never experience suffering and you'll never experience death and you'll never experience... No, Christianity doesn't teach any of that. But what Christianity does teach is that if you make Jesus the foundation of your life, when the whole world falls apart, when the end comes and it's scary like we think it is or not scary or however it ends up being, if Jesus is the foundation, if he is the anchor, you'll be safe. And that's why we preach this message. That's why we preach about Jesus because if he is the foundation, you have nothing to worry about. How many of you have had a friend that you have been mean to, but then they're still your friend the next day? Maybe this just works with guys, I don't know. And that's not a sexist comment, I'm just saying like, I know there's a difference. But you see, Jesus is like your friend where sometimes you get mad at him, but Jesus just keeps coming back because he knows you wanna be his best friend. Bob, like Bob and me as best friends. I want to be his best friend. But see, the truth is, Jesus is everything. I, I wish I could keep saying this, and I wish that the more passionately I can say that, it would convince you more. But we know that it's not the preacher who's convincing you, but it's the Holy Spirit that convinces you. So I will leave you with this. The reason it's of the utmost importance is the way that God defines eternal life. This is eternal life, that they, meaning you, may know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, when I say things like, we don't have to wait until the next age for us to experience the fullness of life with Christ. You know how I always say that? That's not just me being me. That's the scriptures. That's Jesus himself, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, telling us that you can begin to experience the fullness of life. And if you're not experienced that fullness, I just implore you and I invite you and I beg you to keep your eyes on Jesus because he will make all the difference. One more minute. I am so sorry. There's one thing I forgot that makes all of this kind of come together. Remember when Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi? They're in this evil place like the Las Vegas of the first century where they have fertility gods on the side of the cliffs. The reason Jesus took them there was because people called the place the rock of the gods or the cliff of the gods. And they believed that Baal, right, the god Baal would come out. There was an opening in the cliff. There was an, like a cave and a stream of water would come out. And they, in the first century, people believed that the god Baal, like the ultimate god of the pagan people, would actually come in and out from that rock. 
So, like, not even was it just, like, a Las Vegas of the first century, but it was also kind of where, like, the devil came out of. And they would call that Hades, right? Or Hades or hell is the underworld. And what Jesus was saying is that Jesus is the rock of our faith. He is the rock of our salvation. And not even the worst of the worst of society, of evil will be able to overcome the kingdom of heaven. And so what Jesus was doing is that Jesus was charging his disciples full speed into secular society because he believed that the message of Jesus could change even the secular society. That's what Jesus was teaching them in the first century. He wasn't saying retreat and leave. He's saying, no, charge. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom and not even the greatest hell will prevail because it's not even an even fight. Jesus already won. It's like watching the, De which by the way, it's like watching the Denver Broncos like I do once a week. I totally forgot to, to bring this up months ago. It's like watching the Denver Broncos go up against, who did they even play? Oh yeah, the, the Cam Newton guys. Going up against the, the Panthers knowing they already won. And it's like making comments like, Cam Newton, you don't even know what's coming. You're not Superman because you just met kryptonite. <laughs> so to use popular culture, the Jesus-Devil fight isn't even a fight. Batman, devil is bat, I mean Superman, and Jesus is kryptonite. And so the game's over. It's done. Jesus says, it is finished. Don't flee from the cities. Run into them. Teach people. Transform your city. Change your city. Lift me up, and I will do it, because not even the gates of hell will prevail against me. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Um, God, we know that you make scriptures really easy to understand at times. And at the same time, it's hard for us because it really calls us to really reflect on who we are and what we believe. And so I just pray now for myself and for my friends and for my family, Lord, that you would teach us how to keep our eyes on you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.